Hey, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Hope you've already had a great uh, time of worship. If you got your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. We're going to be in Psalm 57. Psalm 57. Uh, before we turn there, let me just tell you a couple things uh, right off the bat. Number one, uh, we're trying to resource as best we can. So any resources you need, whether it be uh, adult curriculum, whether it be children's activities, whatever it is, just go to builtmorechurch.com slash resources, and you'll see a, just a whole bunch of stuff. And then secondly, uh, we're in the middle of a food drive. We are partnering with our partners in both uh, Buncombe County, Henderson County, as well as in Macon County, and so uh, that, that serve high needs, homeless people. So if you would please, uh, over these next couple days, uh, you can go on the website, and you can see what is needed, uh, where to take it. Man, let's bring that stuff up there. That's uh, the first thing we're doing, and just be in prayer. We'll be announcing here in the next maybe week or 10 days uh, uh, an outreach uh, that'll be kind of revolving around the Easter time frame uh, towards some folks that have you know, going through a very difficult time. So uh, be in prayer for that, be looking for that, and uh, Psalm 57 is where we're going to be. Let me start off with this. I, I made a poor decision uh, several years ago when I was in a conversation with my wife, because my wife had, she had somehow we gotten on the conversation about how painful a childbirth was. And she made the comment uh, to some degree of something about, well, if the men were the ones that had the babies, then the world would be a lot less populous than it is right now. Well, I took the bait and took the challenge and then kind of looked up uh, some statistics. And then I came back with her with the information that physically speaking only, passing a kidney stone for a man is close to the same amount of pain as childbirth is for the ladies. She very quickly, very astutely though, made the observation that she said, but the big difference is the pain that we endure is a choice that we've made. The pain that you endure is not a choice. And I was like, checkmate, because the whole purpose was this. A woman chooses that pain because she knows it produces something awesome. As a matter of fact, sometimes right after childbirth, a woman is so excited about what has been produced, about the purpose that the pain produced, she'll like, I'm ready to have another baby. I've never, ever, 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 ever heard a man say, you know what? I'm so excited about passing that kidney stone. I just want to have another one. Never heard that. Point is this, when you know there's a purpose behind the pain, when you understand that behind the pain, even if you don't know exactly what it is, when you understand that there's a purpose behind the pain and that the pain can actually produce something good, we can endure a lot. And what we're going to see in Psalm 57 is God takes pain and purpose and marries them together so that you and I can then hold on to some things that will help us get through the current pain. And so whether it's common, ordinary pain that you and I have to go through on a day-by-day, year-by-year basis, or if it's very particular to today, I mean, the pandemic has caused a lot of pain. Some of you are in financial pain, others of you health pain, emotional pain, retirement pain, whatever it is. Uh, what we're going to look at in Psalm 57, it won't answer all your questions about this. We might look at those in the days ahead. But what we're going to do is we want to look and see, all right, what does God want for us? And the, most, the biggest thing would be, how do I glorify God in the midst of this pandemic that we're in? So Psalm 57 is unusual for a number of reasons. One reason is we actually know the context of Psalm 57. If you look at the top of, it's actually before the text even begins, it simply says that it's by David, 
And it's when he was being pursued by a guy named Saul and that he was in a cave. So let me kind of give you the context in a nutshell, and then I'll read the whole thing through, and then we're going to draw some things out of it. Uh, Saul, not Apostle Saul, but King Saul, he was the first king of Israel, and he was a paranoid guy. He was an immature guy, and he was chasing after David because God had anointed David to be the next king of Israel. And so Saul got all upset, drove David out of town, and then pursued him with about 3,000 soldiers. And so David is on the run for his life. A lot of bad things had happened in David's life. He was separated from his, fr- from his friends, from his family. His, his life was in danger. And yet in the midst of this, when you see this psalm, there's some amazing things, and it's a prayer about honesty, honesty in the midst of difficulty. And by the end of the psalm, David is actually singing. He's full of confidence, and he's full of joy. And so what I want to do is what David learned is this. David learned that something bigger was going on behind the scenes. Something bigger, something bigger than just his appointment with pain, something bigger was going on than just his same situation. And again, what I want us to see is in the midst of your pain, in the midst of our pain, in the midst of the difficulty we face now as a nation and even a world, uh, what's the bigger story going on uh, behind the scenes? So Psalm 57, let's just read the 11 verses. And if you if your Bible app or your Bible, it's great. There's a bunch of words to underline in here. What I want to challenge you to do is I read through it. There's one idea that is repeated in the Psalms. See if you can pick what it is out. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. That's what we want, right? Where can I get some refuge from all this stuff that's going on? In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high. This is a great one. It's, it's actually El Elyon, which means the God who is sovereign. He's in control. He's on his throne. He's not surprised. To God who fulfills his purpose for me. Okay, what's the purpose behind all this? He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Now, we're going to go back. Whenever the Bible marries those two phrases together. Very, very special truth that God wants us to know. Verse four, my soul is in the midst of lions. He's using some poetry here to talk about the direness of his situation. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid the fiery beast, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows. That's what the soldiers had. Whose tongues are sharp swords. Verse five, be exalted, O God. It means be lifted up. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Verse 6. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. And then verse 7, he starts to get this confidence and this worship going on. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. It means calm. It means confident. That's what we're going for. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory, awake, O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. He's so fired up, he's like, I'm going to sing so loud, I'm going to wake people up. More on that in a second. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. That is his worship and what he was learning actually had a public aspect to it. A couple more verses. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. And then he ends it by saying this. 
Be exalted, O God. Remember he said this in verse 5. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. All right, so first truth before we get to the how, how do I glorify God in this pandemic? Great question, but before we get to the how, we kind of got to lay down a foundation of the what. Now the what, for some people, they don't embrace it very quickly and it doesn't go down that easily. But if you and I can grasp it, it is the, one of the most identity-changing, joy-forming truths that literally is all over the Bible. All right, so I'm going to give it to you once. If you're a bit more church for a very long time, you've heard this phrase, hopefully, a bunch, and you're going to hear it a bunch more in the years ahead. But here's what it is. The truth is this. God loves us. God loves us. He does love us. You don't die for somebody that you don't love. God loves us, but it's not about us. God loves us. God loves us. He loves you, but it's not about you. Twice, the only time he repeats something in this entire psalm, David prays the same thing. He says, be exalted, O God. May your glory be over all of the earth. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, God, use this difficult situation. Use this trial that I am going through to let other people know how awesome you are. Take this difficulty, take this trial, and let other people know how awesome you really are. He says, God's glory, let God's glory be every. God's glory sometimes has a, sounds a churchy way of trying to get a truth across. You're like, what does God's glory mean? And so God's glory is used 199 times just in the Old Testament alone. It literally is the theme of the entire Bible. God's glory is God's, it's evidence that God is at work. It's God's fingerprints on virtually everything. And again, it can be a bit alarming to hear for the first time because there's so many verses in the Bible that talk about God's love for us and God's provision for us and God's care for us and the way that God shepherds us and feeds us and all that. So when we hear all that, sometimes we think, well, if he loves us and he shepherds us and he cares for us and he provides for us, you know, it, it, it's got to be about me. And the old adage, the old, there's actually a whole curriculum written on it about cat and dog theology, all right? If, you, if you're around Biltmore Church just very long, you know, we're, we're kind of a dog congregation. That's just who we are, right? We love the cat people, but we love, love, love the dog people. And part of it is just the cat and dog theology that you observe anytime you see either of those. Somebody put it this way. A dog says, and the way the master treats him is like, dog says, you feed me, you pet me, you shelter me, you love me, you must be God. A cat says the same thing. It says, you feed me, you pet me, you shelter me, you love me, I must be God. The whole point is you've got two animals that see the same situation, exact same circumstances, and yet one is self-centered, I must be God, and one is master-centered. You know what? He must be God. Christians are the same way. A lot of Christians, a lot of Christ followers even. Some will say, you know what? God shepherds me and he provides for me and he guides for me and he leads me and he loves me and he even died for me. It must be about me. But what the Bible is full of is he does all of those things, not to make it about you, but the reality is it's about him. You're like, well, you got to show me more than just one prayer in Psalm 57. I came prepared. Psalm 19 says creation, actually just creation itself, is for the glory of God. Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare 
The heavens declare the glory of God. It means the billions of stars you and I see are shouting, you know what, there is a God, there is a God, there is a God. The 228 muscles in the head of a caterpillar says, you know what, there is a designer, there is a designer, there is a designer. The 3,000 species of trees in one square mile, in one square mile of the Amazon rainforest. You know what that says? That says, you know what, uh, this is God's perspective. God did this. There is a God that says God's fingerprints all over this place. Why did God choose to save Israel? Psalm 106 says, he saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. Why does God lead us? Why does God want to work in my life, in your life? I'll use one that's been used, some of you know it by heart. Psalm 23, it's the shepherd song. It's the one that's like, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not, I shall not want. And he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. And sometimes when we read those, it's awesome. But when we think about it, it's like, see right there, it is about me. He's restoring my soul. He's leading me beside the still waters. He's my shepherd. That's the first two verses. Verse 3, though, says, He leads me in paths of righteousness. What's it say after that? He leads me in paths of righteousness for His namesake. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His glory, His namesake, His renown, His fame. To be even go right to the crux of the issue, the reason he saves us, he loves us, he does, he loves us. But the ultimate reason why he saved us is for the glory of God. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 through 6 says this, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And then he goes on to say, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And even later on, In the second chapter of Ephesians, it says, For by grace you were saved through faith, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. Or the way you and I would put it in this context is so that no one else would get the glory. In other words, he's saving us in this way. He's saving us by sending his son down here so none of us would be able to say, you know what, I did this or I contributed to that. We can't say that. Think about it this way. Uh, You and I, to some degree, we've used this illustration once or twice in years past, but it's like when you go to the movies, if you see an awesome movie at the end of it, and we usually don't even wait for the end of the movie as far as the credits and stuff to roll, but when the credits roll, you probably already know who the star of the show is, all right? Will Smith or whoever is like, man, that's why I went to that movie. But if you look and you just sit there and you have nothing better to do, you watch those credits come down and it has everybody who contributed in any way, shape, or form. I mean, you go from the stars to the co-stars, then you go to the makeup artist, and then you go to the people who trained the animals, and then you just keep going down to the person that held the camera or the one that fetched the water or whatever. In a lot of ways, we've got to get the idea is like we're not the star of the show, right? It's his story. And listen, this is such great news for us. But in the Bible, you can just go throughout the whole meta-narrative of the Bible and see in the movie of life, it's all about God. He's the star. When we just do a quick flyby, just consider the movie of life. God creates the world. I mean, we weren't alive then. We contributed nothing to that. God creates the world. And then you fast forward a little bit, and then God is the one that makes people. And then fast forward a little bit, and then the people, we rebel against who? We rebel against God. So God's still the main point. 
And then fast forward, little by little, then God picks a 99-year-old man out of the middle of nowhere named Abram and says, you know what, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. God does that. And then you just keep fast-forwarding all the way through the Scriptures, and you see God takes inadequate people, unqualified people, and uses them for his story. And then the climax of the story is God sends his son, Jesus, and he lives the life we were supposed to live and then dies the death we deserve to die and then is risen from the dead. But God does that. And even the last scene of the movie has not even been shown to us yet, and that's like in the throne room. And in the throne room of God, that last scene, everybody's worshiping who? Worshiping God. So Considering all that, how in the world, how in the world would we ever live as though it is actually about me? We have to ask, what is it that is God is doing in our lives right now? What does God want to do in our lives right now that would bring him the most glory? First Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So if you're married, you know what your marriage is for, first and foremost, is to bring God glory. If you have kids, you want know what you ask for? It's like, you know what? I want my kids to bring God glory. If you're blessed right now and you're like one of the four people on planet Earth that are not affected negatively by this whole pandemic, if you're like that kind of blessed person, and you know what you're about? You're to glorify God by showing the world that a person can be blessed by Almighty God, protected by Almighty God, and still be crazy about Jesus. But if you're like a lot of people and you're going through some difficult times, you know what, you know what our job is? is we can glorify God to a watching world that your God is great and knowing him brings joy and peace and happiness even when life is hard. And you know that one day God's going to wipe away every tear and remove every difficulty. But you know why he does that? Because that's going to bring him glory as well. And so somewhere in your heart of hearts, one of the most freeing things you can ever do is just say, God loves me. God loves me. It's just not, it's just not about me. When we do that, when we get that as our baseline, we can springboard into asking the question, all right, how do I do that in the midst of this hellish time that we're in and doesn't look like it's going to end real, real soon? And so how do I glorify God? How do I do that? In the Psalms, in Psalm 57, what you're going to see is there's some clues about what David is doing in the midst of his difficulty that you and I can then do in the midst of this difficulty, okay? And so go back into the text, Psalm 57. Here's the first thing. You saw it in the first two verses. First thing you can do, listen, it's okay, even though you have great confidence in God and you want to glorify God, is to cry out to God. Cry out, cry out to God. Now, verse 1 says, my soul takes refuge. How does that even, that's very poetic language, all right? What does that mean? It means David is making a choice. He's not taking refuge in He's not taking refuge in his cave. He's not taking refuge in his little army. I mean, Saul's army is like 10 times bigger. He's not taking refuge in his ability with a slingshot or a spear or a sword. He says, I am taking refuge in an all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful God. And he says, I'm going to cry out, verse 2, I'm going to cry out to that God. One of the things that I've learned is people don't pray. People don't pray because they're told to, and people don't pray because they ought to. They pray because they have to. They pray because they're desperate. They're praying because, God, my marriage is in the toilet and my wife walked out on me, and if you don't do something, this marriage is over. That's why people pray. 
People pray when they're like, you know what? My retirement is gone. My job is lost. I'm not sure what I'm going to do. I'm 64 years old. Nobody's going to hire me. That's when we hit our knees. And so when you look at this, uh, he ends up uh, praying and crying out. And there's a difference in the scriptures between just prayer, the word for prayer, and the word for crying out. Crying out is the idea of desperation. If you remember in our Mountains Can Move series, we looked at the boy, or excuse me, the, the dad whose boy was hurting himself. Some of you all have prodigals out there, and you know kind of what we're talking about. And if you remember the dad, the dad is so desperate for something to change. The gospel says that the boy's dad, he says he cried out to Jesus, I do believe, help my unbelief. In other words, I do believe, Jesus, but I'm having a real hard time believing in this particular area. In his case, it was his son. And so crying out, you're crying out to a God, as he said, is the most high God. It's Here's what you got to realize. You're like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to just, I'm not that kind of person. Listen, you're not going to surprise God. There's, God is not up in heaven when you tell him the desperate situation that you're in. God is not ever up in heaven like, I had no idea. I mean, what in the name of me is going on down there? You never hear God say that. And so some of you are like, man, I wish I could have a refuge. And what I learned really even this week is the fact that the refuge is a lot closer than a lot of us even want to realize. Our refuge is really about 20 inches. 20 inches is basically from the distance between your knees and this floor. And it says, you know what? If I cry out to God, I cry out to God. It's like, God, if you don't move, if you don't change this situation, it's not going to change. See, it's not a lesson. It's not just something that you ought to do. It's something you have to do. You pray for that marriage. You pray for that job. You pray for that company. You pray for this nation. You pray for those officials, and you cry out to God. And he says, then, when he cried out to God, that was his refuge. And so here in a little bit, I'm going to ask you to do that actually at the end of the message, whether you're by yourself or whether you're with your family. It's just, God, help me, help me, help me. If you don't know what to pray, God, help me to glorify you in this situation. Like, I'm not even sure God hears me. The psalmist in another place, I think it's Psalm 34, says, listen, God is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Another place it says, he saves our tears in a bottle. Listen, God never moves closer to you as much as he does when you cry out to him in the midst of a trial. Psalm 50 says, listen, you will call on me in your day of trouble. I will hear from you. I will deliver you and you will glorify me. That's a good promise. So cry out to him. Just cry out to him. Second thing just to put down is this, is when you cry out to him, just be confident in the God that you're talking to. I mean, in verses three and four, this is what David does. David makes a great statement. He says, God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. We learned this a couple years ago when we went through that whole description that God, how God describes himself in Exodus 34, verse six and seven. And God describes himself, and this is the one of the way God describes himself. He says, I am full of steadfast love and faithfulness. And what we learn there is when, you, when the Bible combines these two words, the word uh, steadfast love is a, it's a covenant word. It's the word hesed that you and I usually don't use the word covenant. Covenant's not a word we use a lot today. Closest thing you have is to a covenant would be marriage. All right, marriage is, you know what, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health till death do us part. What we're really making there, whether you know it or not, that's a covenant. In other words, it's not a contract. 
Contract says, you do this, and if you do this, then I'll do this. A covenant says, regardless of what you do, I will do this. That's what God's saying here. It's covenant, steadfast love. It's a hard one to do to kind of translate. That's why some of your translations say other ones like, you know, loyalty or, or just love. But that's what it is. It's the idea of God's loyalty toward his people. It's the idea that, you know what, no matter what happens, no matter how bad it looks, God will never, ever, 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 under any circumstances, abandon his people. He will never do that. Let me just say this as clearly as I can, though. David, David knew this looking forward to a promised Messiah. If David can pray in confidence to a promised rescuer, to a promised Savior, if you're a Christ follower, how much more should we be able to pray in confidence? Because a lot of times we look around our circumstances and like, well, I'm looking at my circumstances and I'm looking at these things go wrong and I'm not sure God is God mad at me and is God, is God punishing me. Listen, if you're in Christ and Christ is in you, that means if you've actually embraced Christ by repentance and faith, if there's been a time where you turned from your sin and entrusted Christ as your Savior, you didn't have to know all this stuff. If all you knew is, you know what, when Jesus says it is finished, when Jesus died on the cross, somehow, some way, that counted for me, and I'm believing that. If, if that has happened in your life, all of the reason, all of the wrath that God was going to pour out on sin, he poured out on his son Jesus. And so what's left for you? Nothing but steadfast love and faithfulness. That's all that's left for you. And so when you pray, you can pray confidently. And a lot of times you just need to say, I'm going to pray and I know God loves me, not because I'm dwelling on my circumstances, but I'm dwelling, I'm dwelling on the cross, all right? The cross shows me, it doesn't show me, you're like, I don't, know, I don't know what's going on in this whole pandemic. You know, I don't either. I don't either. People that's like, well, here's the reason, here's the reason. There are some clues and there's some things that God says that we might look at at a different time that gives us some reasons about a, a broken world and some things like that. There are some of those answers we'll look at at a different time. But right now, when you're looking at this, you're like, I don't understand what God is doing in my particular situation. I don't know why this is happening. What the cross does is the cross shows you what suffering and difficulty and trial, if you're a Christ follower, can't mean. It can't mean, it can't mean that he's forsaken you. It can't mean that he doesn't love you. It can't mean that he is surprised about what's going on. And so when you and I pray in confidence, we pray in confidence, why? Because we're dwelling on what happened at the cross, not as what's just going on temporarily in our circumstances. All right, here's the last one. I, 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 wanna, I love this one. There's a choice that I'm going to ask you to kind of get out of your comfort zone here in a minute, that you choose to worship God. Now, verse 7, 8, and 9, you see David segueing into actual worshiping and song. Now, listen, I know a lot of you can't sing. I can't sing at all, right? I'm the worst singer watching today. I promise you that. But it's not a matter of whether you can sing or not. The question is not how good are you at singing. The question is do you and I understand how costly we were? Because in verse 7, here's what David said. When David is talking about all this thing about choosing to worship God, I want you to underline something in your Bible. He says in verse 7, he says, I will sing. And then he goes on and it's implied, I will make melody in my heart to God. So here's what it means. David chooses to worship God, not because his situation is awesome, but because his God is awesome. You and I choose, and it is a choice, we choose to worship God, not because the situation is awesome, not because the situation is great, but because God is great. 
because God is awesome. And worship cannot be a declaration of your feelings as much as it is a declaration of your faith. Because if you're like, I don't feel like worshiping, there's nowhere in there that David started off feeling like worshiping God. The first few verses, that's not where he is. And uh, you're like, uh, I, 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 I'm not, it's not how I feel. I'm not, it's, not, it's not how I feel. It's not a matter of how you feel. It's, it's what God says is true. So here's, here's what it is. Um, worship is the, think about it this way, worship is the fuel for your Christian life. The way we say it around here a lot of times is the gospel is the engine of the Christian life, but worship is the fuel. Okay, when we say the gospel is the engine, here's what we mean. Is understanding and applying the gospel, it is the fuel, not just how you get saved, but then how you act saved as well. All right, the gospel fuels everything. You and I serve, why? Because we were served in the gospel. We're generous, why? Because God was generous with us in the gospel. We're patient with other people. Why? Because God was patient with us in the gospel. We forgive other people that have hurt us. Why? Because God forgave us when we had offended him. All those things, that's the engine. But the fuel that you put in to make that engine run is, it is worship. And when you and I understand the price that was paid for us, see, if you don't understand the gospel, you don't really want to worship that much because you don't really understand how costly you were. So easy example. If, um, if somebody came along and they paid for your lunch, let's say you were out somewhere where it cost 10 bucks for lunch. If, you were, if, your, if your lunch cost $10 and somebody came by, maybe they were eating with you, maybe they just stopped by, it's like, I'm going to pick up the tab today. And they picked up a lunch that you had just enjoyed for $10. Your reaction would be gratitude. Gr- yeah, I'm grateful thank you. That was very nice of you. But that would probably be the, that would probably be it. But if you were like millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars in debt, if creditors were knocking at your door, if you were about to go put in jail because of how many back taxes you owed, and then somebody came along and paid all of that millions and millions of dollars off, paid off all your creditors, paid off the IRS, you weren't going to jail, you were free, your family was free. If you just said, thanks, that was nice, that would be wholly inadequate. Multiply that times like a billion, and that's how much you and I cost when Jesus, again, he lived the life we were supposed to live, the perfect life, the sinless life, and then died in our place. The people you saw baptized earlier, you know what? They had a shirt on that just said, Jesus in my place, that's the gospel. And when you and I dwell in there and we understand that and we repeat it and preach that to ourselves over and over again, then the natural part of that is worship. And here's what's actually cool, is when we choose to worship, then eventually what happens is our feelings come around. Even uh, probably two, two or three days ago, um, I'm not a runner, but I like to run. I used to think I was a runner, and then I realized how slow I was going and realized I'm not a runner anymore, so I just run. But when I run, I run with Ranger, and I run with headphones on, or uh, whatever the earbuds. So when I'm running, I always have music. And I got various things, but it's hard to worship to, you know, can't trust this or whatever. So the other day, I was thinking about all the stuff going on with our country, all the stuff in our community, you know, worrying about everything from, you know, pocketbooks to prodigal sons, all that kind of stuff. And it was starting to get very melancholy and kind of getting in that kind of funk that is, that's no good. And then one of my current favorite worship songs uh, uh, came on. 
And I probably had about a mile left to go, maybe a mile and a half left to go. And uh, the song's maybe, I think the song's maybe six minutes. And it's, it's uh, I raise a hallelujah. And we sing it here a bunch. And uh, it came on the first time and I could tell my pace quickened a little bit and I got a little more, my, my joy sort of started to kind of return a little bit. And it started just reminding me of some of the truths, the, the verse, and I think it's even the chorus. It's like, I raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. And there were certain things that, I, you know, you might defy as enemies, whether it be, you know, COVID or whatever. It's like, you know what? I raise a hallelujah. I raise an amen. I raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. And then it's, I raise a hallelujah. And here's the one that says, louder than my unbelief. And when that chorus came on or that, that saying came on, my mind immediately went back to six or eight weeks ago whenever we started Mountains Can Move when we looked at the dad and it says, louder than my unbelief, I thought about his prayer. God, I do believe, help my unbelief. And man, I bet you I played that, I played that song and I kept hitting it repeat, repeat, repeat. And I'll tell you, by the time I got to my garage, man, I was like, I was like Rocky Balboa going up the steps of the Philadelphia Museum. It's like I was excited again. So what happens is I got the facts, I got the facts right, and then the facts began to change my feelings. And so when you're worshiping, just understand the byproduct of worship is it changes your feelings. And that's what you see even in verse 8. He says, I will awaken the dawn. I will awaken the dawn. And let me tell you one, uh, one more quick story. Uh, he says, I will awaken the dawn. The idea is he's going to sing so loud and so early, he's going to wake people up. And about three days ago, maybe four days ago, um, uh, I heard, well, our, uh, my father-in-law, Lori's dad, was a long, long time minister of music. He was a minister of music in churches for close to 50 years. Let me just think about that, 50 years I don't know how many thousands of services that is, where he, st- he was up on the platform leading other people in worship and songs and hymns and all this kind of stuff from Oklahoma to Texas. He was just, he was leading, leading, leading. And then, but, then, but the last, you know, the last couple of years have been pretty hard on him. I mean, he's, uh, you know, he retired. Uh, that was hard. Um, had some difficult situations happen, the most difficult uh, definitely being, you know, not many months ago, his wife of many, many years uh, passed away after a long health battle. Uh, then, to, you know, kind of top it off through some difficult circumstances, he has to come out and uh, live with an, uh, you know, an uh, obnoxious son-in-law. And he's been with us for about a week or so, uh, maybe a week or 10 days. And I, the other day I sit there and all of a sudden, I started hearing this noise, and I was like, what is that? Because he, he moved into the, basically the basement or the downstairs living area, and I was, up, I was upstairs, and all of a sudden, I just, I hear it. I can't tell what it is first. I'm like, what is that? What is that? And then what I realized is, this is a, uh, it was actually last Sunday. Now that I think about it, it was, actually, it was last Sunday. And I think he'd watched the webcast, and then he was sitting there, and all he had is he had a guitar, and I heard this, you he could hear the guitar, and he was just, he was just singing. And I started to recognize it after a while. It wasn't one of the, wasn't, wasn't, you know, Raise a Hallelujah, it wasn't Hillsong, it wasn't, what it was, it was an old hymn. It was actually one of the first hymns I learned as a brand new Christian. And what he was, what he was singing was, he was singing, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. I just, I just heard this man of 70 some odd years who had led God's people, had been a worship leader for 50 years, five decades and now the worship leader 
was practicing what he had led people to do for five decades. He went from being a a worship leader to a worshiper. And I I couldn't tell, but even in his, with all the stuff, with the death of his wife, with moving and saying goodbye to friends and all, the joy in his voice, even one floor below, was so encouraging and so evident. Just as he's like, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. And I was just up there, I was listening to him worship, and his worship ended up impacting me. And so one last thing. Verse 9 says, he did this among the people, and he did this among the nations. Worship, it is singing, it is studying the word, but it's also a very public aspect to it. It's public. He says, I'll give thanks among the peoples. In other words, David's walk with the Lord had not just an inward expression, an upward expression. David's walk with the Lord had an outward expression. I cannot tell you how, this is the wrong word maybe, but proud I've been just in the initial stages of this deal. Just, and all I'm doing is just Facebook stalking, just watching the Facebook, the Biltmore Facebook page, and just watching all the comments about what you guys are doing. And, it's, and we're going to do organized stuff for sure. You know, we try to get our handle around how do we organize. Normally, we'd have like the big survey to eight and just go out and, you know, do a thousand families, that kind of thing. But we're having to figure out what are we allowed to do and those kind of things. And so there's going to be very organized. The food drive, obviously. Um, the real cool outreach to people who have been put out of work that we'll be announcing here kind of going into Easter. But just watching what you've done individually. I mean, I've just seen it. Everything from... Uh, School teachers who are not teaching right now, they're offering to help moms uh, how to, you know, help them, give them the skills, how to teach their kids while their kids are at home. And that's awesome. I've seen other ones where one guy who's got, I guess, a farm or something, he, his, 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 his chickens are laying eggs and he's taking eggs to his neighbors. Um, somebody else was like, I need help. My mom, my senior adult mom is having to move and just put that out there and how our people went over there and helped them move over and over and over again. So great job. Again, it's, the worship is not just about the songs you sing and the sermons you preach, the studies you do. It's also about how is that going to impact being on mission, all right? Because the glory of God and the mission of God are so closely intertwined. Sometimes it's hard to actually see the difference between the two. So thank you for being on mission with God for the glory of God. So here's what I want you to do, and, and we're gonna, we got some folks who are going to help you. Um, what I'd like you to do is, and again, I know some of you are new, and it's dads I, not growing up with a dad who taught me how to do this stuff. I was clueless, still am in a lot of ways. But um, whether you're by yourself or with friends or family or whatever, take some time, and even if you, I mean, I think it'd be great if you hit your knees, especially if you're family. If you, if you are blessed to be a parent and you've got little kids around you or even teenagers, I can't imagine the impact because see, part of the reason, part of the small little reason that God's going to, how he's going to redeem all this, maybe for the first time in a long time, going to see mom and dad on their knees by the couch crying out to almighty God to help them. That's worth like a thousand sermons. And so again, uh, when I ask you to pray, you're like, I don't know what to pray. Romans 8 tells us, you know what, even when we don't know what to pray, God takes our very limited prayers, rearranges them and delivers them up to heaven perfectly. And so just pray, God, help me to use this situation to glorify your name in my neighborhood and in my community. And then what I'm going to do is uh, 
after I pray, the guys are going to come on, the ladies are going to come on, and they're just going to do that, turn your eyes upon Jesus, and uh, as best you can. Uh, I know some of you are real shy, and you don't like to sing, and you definitely don't want to sing with people that are only like five people instead of a ton of people, but as best you can, I just just stand and sing. It's just going to be real short. It's like a minute long, and just turn your eyes upon Jesus, and uh, you'll be blessed, and God will be glorified. So let me pray for us. Father, thanks for, thanks for being a good and great king. You're a good God. You're a great God. You're a sovereign God. You are a Savior. And our prayer is, God, help us to redeem this situation for the honor and the glory of your name. God, help us to be worshipers. Help us to be prayers. Help us to be firmly entrenched in the reality, the comforting reality that you love us, but it's about you. Thanks for allowing us to be part of your story. Help us to fill our part for the glory of God and for the good of other people. God, in the days ahead and the weeks ahead, help us simply be all about loving God and loving our neighbor for the glory of God. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.